Welcome to the Limitless Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Roseland. This podcast will teach you to acquire superhuman mental abilities and hack your reality. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Ashton Smith. We diagnose and identify actionable solutions to 20 notorious problems of smart people. We also discuss the newest developments with IQ and fluid intelligence building software, along with sharing some cool life hacks for reading more and procrastinating less and improving your conversational skills with your smart. Thanks for joining the Limitless Mindset podcast. Before we dive into this episode, I want to give two real heartfelt shout outs to two listeners that recently logged into their iTunes accounts and left the Limitless Mindset podcast five star reviews. Jay Kwan from New Hampshire said, this is a awesome podcast, fantastic information given, truly helps one become a better person. Thanks, JQ, what it do. We also heard from Slee Stacks. He said, or could be a she, I shouldn't assume that it's a he just because it's a hip hopish sounding name like Slee Stacks. Slee Stacks said, great stuff, five stars. I've been listening to Jonathan and Woody on my commute to work each week and applying some of their prescriptions with much success. Success. I highly recommend investing the time to listen to each of these podcasts and applying their practical advice. Keep up the good work. Thanks. I'm really glad to hear that you're getting some success from applying our prescriptions. So speaking of practical advice, we got some pieces of interesting listener mail that I think is worth addressing because I think a lot of you are going to find this relevant. We heard from Barry and he wrote us saying that uh, he's around 46 years old and his testosterone levels are getting a little bit lower, which is normal around that time of life for men and that he wants to have, you know, physical energy 
need to start early and keep going strong throughout the day. And, you know, low testosterone levels are not just a problem for people that are in their, their 40s or their 50s or their 60s. Low testosterone levels are really something that we all need to be concerned and vigilant about because there's a lot of environmental factors such as additives in our food, pollution, some of the vices that we, we entertain that will lower our testosterone levels. So what I recommend for some biohacking solutions to boost the testosterone levels is supplementing zinc between 50 to 100 milligrams daily. There's a supplement called D-aspartate, which will help boost testosterone. Vitamin C will help with your testosterone levels. Fish oil pills and ginseng all work together in a, in a, in a synchronicity to increase testosterone levels. Another little life hack that's completely free. Those supplements are all pretty affordable and you'll definitely be able to feel more energetic. You'll, you'll feel like you have more testosterone. But another interesting little life hack that will boost up your testosterone levels is taking cold showers. That's right. I know that sounds a little bit funky. It sounds a little bit unpleasant. It might sound really unpleasant if you live in a, in a cold place and you enjoy your warm showers, but cold showers put your body into a state where your body is trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Why is there so much cold water on it right now? And so it puts your system into just a little bit of a, a shock in a good way that increases your testosterone production. And it also boosts up your libido, which is a really nice side effect of increased testosterone. If you're looking for a little bit more hardcore solution than those for increasing your testosterone, but you don't want to go the real extreme route of actually doing like testosterone injections. There's a supplement that was put out recently called T plus by on it labs. And it is a supplement specifically formulated to boost testosterone levels, but it does it in a, in a natural way. It feeds your body more of those, more than natural building blocks that it needs to, to pump up the testosterone level. It's a little bit more expensive. It looks like it's priced anywhere between about 50 to $60, depending upon, I assume the shipping and handling. I haven't tried T plus yet. I'm looking forward to trying T plus by on it labs, but if you wanted to take your, uh, your testosterone quest to the next level, that would probably be a good thing to look into. We also heard from Kristen via Facebook. She wrote, on another note, I've been reading up about nootropics through your kick-ass site, among other outlets, and I was wondering if you could prescribe me a cure for slow sluggishtude and a wanderlust mindset. So if you're looking for the best gateway smart drug, I'd have to go with paracetam or really anything in the racetam family. And there's a couple of reasons for this. The racetams are the original OG smart drug. They've been around for over 40 years. They've undergone the real long-term studies, clinical studies done on paracetam. 
paracetam or any racetam is a single ingredient supplement. So if you have an allergic reaction to it, which is really rare, then it's not a trial and error testing process. There's a lot of really great nootropic stacks on the market, but the problem with them, as with is with any supplement that's a combination of ingredients, is that if you have a reaction from the supplement that you don't like, it's a trial and error process to figure out which ingredient in the cocktail of ingredients is not jiving with your system. Whereas with paracetam, you'll take it and you either will like it or you won't. And the vast majority of people really do like it because it helps with all domains of overall improved cognitive function. It would definitely increase your productivity. It's going to boost up your feel-good neurotransmitters. It will improve your confidence. It's going to improve the formation of your long and short-term memories. It has some potent anti-aging effects. It will increase your willpower and it'll also decrease your stress level all simultaneously. What's also really great about paracetam is that it essentially pays for itself if you are a coffee drinker. If you do between two to four paracetam in the mornings, I like to do four paracetam because I'm kind of a, a productivity freak like that. But if you do anywhere between two to four paracetams in the morning, you will not be drinking coffee because you're going to be very fired up and productive and focused and energetic and you really won't feel like coffee. So if you look at your monthly cost, of coffee shop visits or buying coffee from the grocery store, paracetam is essentially going to pay for itself. It's pretty inexpensive. It is going to run around $18 a bottle, which has 60 capsules in it. The dosage I like adds up to about two bottles a month, but you're going to have to experiment with what is right for you. For Kristen and anyone else who's interested in trying paracetam, we'll have some links in the show notes to some vendors of really high-quality paracetam. I've got a real quick apology for you, the listener. Some of you may have noticed that it's been some time since we put out an episode. The simple reason for this is that I've spent the past five months traveling in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama, and Colombia. The places I find myself in are almost always within earshot of some combination of construction, taxis honking, motorcycles, fireworks going off, kids screaming, or even drunk Australians partying. And it's difficult to find a place that's quiet enough to ensure really high audio recording quality of these podcasts. And a few weeks ago, I reread some of the feedback that I've gotten from listeners, and the positive feedback mostly focused on the fact that we give highly actionable information for becoming more productive and happy in life. As I thought about this, I realized that construction, taxis honking, fireworks going off, kids screaming, or drunk Australians partying as background noise doesn't really prevent me from delivering 
what people really want from this podcast, which is actionable information about scientifically credible ways to be higher performance. So I apologize sincerely to you about the background noise. But more importantly, I apologize about being inconsistent in the schedule of releasing podcast episodes. We're going to continue putting out these these imperfect episode noise with a little bit of interesting environmental background noise, but I'm doubly committed to delivering actionable information. And that's exactly what we're going to do in this episode. In this episode of the Limitless Mindset podcast, we are going to discuss 20 notorious problems of smart people. And these are problems that people have that are what I like to refer to as people that uh, got a lucky roll of the genetic dice, that they were born with a naturally higher IQ. And these are also problems that people have that are that are kind of people that are like myself, that are still paying their dues, that are really having to make, make some, some investments in building their IQ and in, in building their intellect. And we think that we've identified fairly actionable solutions for all 20 of these. And I'm lucky this episode to be joined by one of the most genuinely intelligent people I know. And I know a lot of intelligent people. And that's uh, Dr. Mark Ashton Smith. How are you doing today? Uh, Great. Yeah. Thanks for the compliment. (laughs) Um, I know a lot of people smarter than myself. Cool. Well, hopefully we can make uh, hashtag smart people problems a, uh, a soon to be relatively infamous hashtag. And maybe we can maybe if people start using that, we can get some more uh, some more feedback of, of some more uh, smart people problems that we can tackle. OK, so problem number one is that and this this one really kind of sucks, which is why I listed it first, which is that a lot of times uh, highly intelligent people have less sex. And so unfortunately, kind of the, the stereotype of the of the sexually frustrated uh, nerd who hasn't been late in six months is is fairly accurate. And this was from a paper that was in the Journal of Adolescent Health. And what they found was that there was something of a, a, a at least in younger people, there's something of an inverse relationship in between people that had higher IQs and higher academic uh, academic accomplishments and their sex lives. So that's a, that's a little bit disappointing. Um, uh, are you thinking of me in particular? <laughs> no, no, I'm completely, I'm completely making, making generalizations. I do know that people who are married or, or who have long-term partners generally have more sex. And um, people with higher IQs tend to have longer-term relationships. Um, but if you're talking about people with IQs that are kind of off the scale and, um, you know, it's almost bordering on, um, you know, having some sort of social adaptation problems, then maybe, you know, the sex problems go along with that. Yeah, you know, this particular problem, I actually think it's pretty manageable 
because if you look at kind of like the processes and the activities that that get that get people laid, which are you know dating, courtship, etc., these are these are skill sets that people can that people can learn just like just like smart people learn skill sets like engineering or computer science or mathematics or physics. Those those courtship skill sets are also skill sets, but they require just as much just as much focus and. And I've got three resources um, linked in the show notes that I think if people need to polish those skill sets a little bit, these are three resources that, to be honest, have helped me quite a bit. And I'm I'm not married, uh, so these yeah. three resources were there was uh, there was three podcasts and they were all free, completely free to download. One was called Pickup Podcast. The second one was called Sex Nerd Sandra, and the third one was called Day Game. And I will link those in the show notes because those are three resources that I found have been just really actionable in that area, and they're almost mm. and they're kind of uh, they're kind of positioned for a for I think an audience that's more intellectual and that you know that that's maybe even a little bit kind of geeky and nerdy. Um, so hopefully, people well, think, yeah. check those out. Yeah, I mean. You know, when you when you sort of frame the uh, the problem, uh, the solution, the problem in terms of um, skill sets and you know training and um, strategies and so on and so forth, uh, um, I think a lot of people who are who are good at getting laid, you know, they're doing it on sort of autopilot and it's just instinctive, you know. And I suppose that people who are more intelligent generally have more sort of metacognition going on and more reflective on what they're doing and more, um, I don't know, self, self-critical self and self-regulating. So maybe that sometimes can interfere with um, just getting onto autopilot and going with the flow and stuff like that. So maybe that's one source of, um, you know, the, the negative correlation that you seem to refer to. But um, I think if you, if you do have, you know, you are kind of, cognition hungry, then uh, strategies and techniques and and uh, and such like probably a good approach. And I think that people that are cognition hungry, would you also describe that as people that are looking for evolutionary novel type tasks and activities? Uh, yeah, I would. I would imagine. Yeah, because um, I suppose you have. A kind of dislike for being on autopilot. You know, you want to keep conscious and engaged, reflective, critical. Um, and if you know, it doesn't take long if you're doing something for it to become automated and on autopilot. So yeah, I suppose there's a relationship with curiosity and wanting to do new stuff as well. Um, yeah. The the next problem that. <clears throat> we've got is what I like to describe as the ego problem with evolutionarily familiar tasks. So an evolutionary, evolutionary, evolutionarily familiar task is something like getting laid. It's something like making friends. It's things like, you know, it's things like going and hunting your own food or preparing your own food. And 
There was an article in The Economist, and uh, in that article, Satoshi Kawanza, who um, has done about three different books and over 80 articles on, on evolutionary psychology, what he was explaining there is that smart people are generally very good at things that are evolutionarily novel, which are things like, like developing software, figuring out complex engineering problems, uh, doing mathematics, doing, doing physics, that kind of uh, real diving really into the, into the meta of why the world works. But as a generalization for smart people or people with higher IQs, we have a weakness when it comes to these, these evolutionarily familiar tasks. Um, well... Uh, there are a couple of things. I mean, yeah, you got to you could distinguish between things that you you automate and you get good at um, because you practice them, and um, and obviously you know smart people can do that very well. They're very efficient generally at learning new things that they then automate. Um, but yeah, you're right. That's different from things that you could consider instinctive that might require um, some form of skill or strategy that's not uh, based on problem solving and based on, uh, you know, that kind of cognitive process. And, um, but I, you know, I think you need to distinguish between the two of them. And there, you know, like quite a few studies have shown um, there's no correlation between um, something called implicit learning for, um, for kind of um, patterns and, stuff out there that you're not consciously trying to problem solve. And um, so, you know, that might connect with some of the stuff that this evolutionary biologist is talking about. But I don't know if, you know, there are too many studies connecting those two. But, um, you know, obviously some people are pretty smart at survival. They're pretty smart at, uh, you know, finding uh, um, people to get laid with or whatever. Um, and they learn very quickly and efficiently, but they could never say why they learned it, and they don't, you know, they don't have any conscious strategies or rules that they're applying to learn it. Um, you know, but anyway, there's, uh, there's certainly a lot that's just effortless and relatively smart people. Um, but you know, it doesn't necessarily connect with all of that implicit motive stuff, um, like you're talking about. But, but it's certainly just on autopilot and instinctive, you know doesn't mean they're always caught up in a meta trap if you're if you're super clever I think there's a little bit of a of a, an effect that our ego has on us when it comes to learning some of these skills that are more evolutionarily familiar skills and I, I have a great example of this I am a really poor cook I'm just when I go in kitchens, I, nothing, nothing good comes out of the kitchen. And I've always kind of thought of, I've never thought of cooking as something that was so complicated that it was ever really worth my while to invest time in becoming a good cook and really learning the skill sets of being a good cook. And so... But And as a result, I'm a pretty terrible cook, and most of the time, if I can't find someone to cook for me, I just eat out. And so I think that's kind of an example of where I need to, uh, I need to treat this 
this evolutionarily familiar activity of preparing food with a little bit yeah. more with a little bit more respect as opposed to you know blowing it off as something that's that's not quite worth my while because I'm probably going to be you know eating every day for the <clears throat> the rest of the rest of my life and so I think that uh, people that are that, that are having issues with those those activities that they sh things should be uh, implicitly learned activities that sometimes they, you know, especially things like, uh, like say, relating to your kids or, or scoring mm. a date or forming really mm. genuine relationships. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think we need to approach those with the same kind of energy that we might approach something like, uh, something like, say, building a building a piece of software or building a company yeah. or something. Well, it's a great, it's a great idea. Okay. Here's a suggestion for someone who, who does that, you know, like with a real kind of passion. That's, um, what's his name, Tim Ferriss. Um, you know, he's just come out with the, the, the last book he published was, uh, I think, The Four-Hour Cook or something like that. Or, and um, the one before that was The Four-Hour work, uh, four work Week, or I think it was called. Um, but anyway, his latest book is on cooking, and he's taken exactly that approach you just described there, and, um, you know, treating it with a lot of intelligence, treating it with a lot of dedication and strategy, um, and getting some fantastic, very fast results. Um, so I, would, I agree with you. A lot of these things that, you know, we don't, we don't think about applying our intelligence to um, could really you know, be much more enriched if we actually did apply our intelligence to them. Okay. Mark, so I wanted to jump on to the next problem, which is what I like to describe as the, the spacing problem of memorization. And this is something that I think is kind of in your area of expertise because it deals with it deals with memory and it deals with the spaced repetition theory of learning from the uh, w w which was developed into a software that I'm actually really interested in your opinion on. Uh, are you very familiar with SuperMemo? To be honest, I've only uh, come across one article that I've read in any kind of depth on on this type of um, you know memory intervention, um, prompting uh, you know strategic intervals um, to refresh and consolidate, you know, what you're learning for, I think it was exams in the article I read. Um, I'd have to refer back to that, but in principle, the concept seems like a scientifically solid one. Um, I mean, my specialization isn't actually long-term memory, because it's a way, this is the, an issue of the consolidation process into longer-term memory. Um, my specialization is more uh, related to executive functioning and working memory, which is a little different. Um, but in principle, it looks like a good, you know, a good um, scientifically grounded um, intervention. That's that's true. I've been experimenting the past two weeks with the super memo 
uh, spaced repetition application for learning Spanish, which is the language that I'm taking on right now. And it's, it's a fairly intuitive experience. It works pretty simply. What it does is it, it employs a, a, what I assume is a fairly sophisticated algorithm to try to determine when you are going to forget a piece of vocabulary or a phrase that you're learning in a new language. And what it does is every day it gives you about 30 new words or phrases to to learn and then it reviews you on those phrases in the days following and when you first start doing it it feels kind of like a it feels kind of like a fairly regimented scheduling of reviewing your phrases and your vocabulary but after you've used it for about a week it starts to if you don't remember a phrase correctly, you indicate, hey, I don't remember this particular phrase or this particular piece of vocabulary, and then it prompts you to review it tomorrow. And I find that after about a week to 10 days of practice with this, it starts to get a good idea of understanding what's, what's my personal pattern or my personal likelihood of forgetting a piece of vocabulary and then prompting me to review it um, at that point in time where I'm where I'm kind of on the cusp of forgetting it, if that makes sense. That's great. Yeah, it's a great idea. Cool, cool. I'll make sure to I'll make sure to send you over, I believe they had an application for for Turkish and you might you might wanna you might want to play around with that because it seemed like uh, it was it was really well produced. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that sounds like a good uh, you know a good kind of idea. Um, assuming over time you're fairly regular, um, but it's it's presumably constantly adapting as you go on. So another another problem of smart people is technology addiction. And I think that a lot of times, especially because there's, there's so many in, in society, there's so many economic benefits to being highly skilled with technology, there's, there's a really high risk that we have um, of spending what could be the happiest times of our life staring at staring at glowing screens. And because of our, <clears throat> our affinity for these evolutionarily novel activities, we're more likely to spend a, a disproportionate amount of time interacting with our technology over activities that result in, in, in more genuine happiness. So what, what would you think of as some, some possible solutions to this? Um, a lot of self-discipline, I think. Um, I think in your article, you hit it on the head when you said you've just got to um, schedule your own you know, day and um, and that's you know that's one thing. It's just self-control and making sure that you're only you know, on Facebook a certain amount of time at a certain time of day, whatever it is, um, or at work. Uh, I try and like minimise uh, work to four hours a day, and um, you know it helps to get into a routine. And I I sort of put myself into a into a different place in a different environment for a certain type of activity, um, and and then when I'm out of that environment, 
again. I find it easier to disengage. So it's not just the, the discipline in, in scheduling, but also uh, the help you get from like moving yourself around in different environments to doing different types of work. Um, another thing is obvious simple things like, you know, don't, don't have your smartphone with you when you go to sleep, you know, because um, if you put it in another room, then you can't keep checking it. Um, so, you know, it's all the common sense stuff. And I think everything that you said applies to the next problem of smart people, which is which is workaholism. And I think that the real solution to workaholism is, yeah, to apply the discipline that you apply in your working life to your to your life of relaxing, to your time that you spend exercising, your time you spend socializing, the time that you spend with your family. And there's there's a particular there's a particular maxim and it's really it's kind of a trite maxim that I really dislike and it's something that I think that a lot of smart people kind of live by and you hear it a lot so I just I I want to uh, so the the maxim is entrepreneurship is living a few years of your life like most people won't so that you can spend the rest of your life like most people can't. And I think in that particular maxim, we can take the word entrepreneurship and we can, we can trade that out with a bunch of other words that people use to describe the, the work that they do or their careers. And this particular maxim, I really disagree with it because I think that people that take this attitude of, you know, hey, I'm going to be a hardcore workaholic for a couple of years so that I can relax for the rest of my life. I just find that really, really unrealistic. And I think that that particular attitude is an attitude that, that promotes this unhealthy kind of, kind of workaholicism. So I would encourage our, our, our listeners to not, to not live by that particular maxim. Well, yeah. I mean, after two years of working hard and being workaholic, um, I think it would be unrealistic to think you suddenly, you know, attained what you were after and then you could just suddenly, you know, um, dial it all back and, and not work and relax and so on. I mean, you're, you're ingraining lots of habits over those two years if you're really dedicated. And if your business is growing, you know, you're going to keep, keep with that. Um, so, you know, if you're going to be, if you're going to be doing that amount of work and trying to grow a business like that, um, you'll find that that'll just carry on. A lot of people want it that way. Um, so, I mean, I think part of the answer here is in terms of your your values, you know, your um, your ultimate goals, um, what your priorities are. So, for me and uh, the way I'm heading right now, it's it's the idea of having more diversity in terms of a lifestyle. Uh, then I would get by, for example, staying in Cambridge University where I could have stayed and just dedicating my life to a particular discipline within psychology in a particular department, um, like a lot of my friends do. Uh, um, so, you know, if you're prioritizing doing other stuff like traveling, like uh, climbing, like flying, like spending time with family, like trying to educate your kids in a certain way, and a diversity of different, you know, ultimate goals in your life, um, then I think you can kind of start to recalibrate things and try and be more efficient in terms of, uh, you know, earning 
in your living to be able to enable all of these things. So the the next problem of smart people, and this is kind of an interesting one, which is that smart people are more likely to have substance abuse problems because of our <clears throat> our propensity towards evolutionarily novel activities. We're kind of we're kind of novelty junkies. So that means that, uh, and this is this is found by a, this is an article in Psychology Today. There's actually two articles in Psychology Today that were about. Uh, the the correlation between higher IQs and between um, more likelihood of uh, binge drinking and more likelihood in between doing doing hard drugs like uh, like cocaine ecstasy etc and so I thought that was I thought that was uh, a little bit crazy because you think of you generally think of smart people as being as being more conservative but I guess what psychology today is saying is that we should be we should be more on, more on the lookout for you know for substance abuse abuse problems uh, in our in our in our in our lifestyles. Yeah, I mean, I think you know maybe part of that is to do with learning dopamine dopaminergic learning system, and you know clearly smart people generally uh, um, fixated on problems or challenges um, and part of that process and the kind of very focused motivation that you get um, involves this reward systems that are potentially addictive and um, you know it can lead to success in solving the problems or meeting the challenges um, but also can reflect on maybe a propensity to be addictive you know, two novel things that you're talking about, um, but I'm not I'm not too familiar with the um, addiction research there, um, so I couldn't really comment too much on that. As as a solution to the substance abuse problems, I'd like to I'd like to direct our listeners to a article that we put out a couple weeks ago that was on the subject of how to biohack yourself or better self-control. And in this article, <clears throat> we identified 17 different really actionable things that people could do to set up their physiology for more self-control. And so I would, I would direct, I would just direct our listeners to check out that article um, for, for exercising higher self-control. Interestingly, one of the, one of the solutions, one of the, one of the 17 things in there for self, for biohacking self-control was dual NBAC software, which we will talk about a little bit later. So another problem of smart people is that you're more likely to be a psychopath, according to uh, studies that were done in the Georgia penal system and at the at the Swedish university, have shown correlations between high IQ and psychopathy, which is, I, I guess, what kind of fits with your your stereotype of a of a psychopath. As you think of psychopaths as being these, you know, charming fairly successful people when they're not, you know, cutting people apart with a with it with an axe. But mm. um, the ma the vast majority of psychopaths are not going to be people that are going to be doing uh, that are going to be doing 
murders and doing uh, socially irresponsible things, the vast majority of psychopaths are just people that lack the emotional intelligence um, to tell if they're if they're hurting the feelings of the people around them with their actions. So, you know, normal, uh, quote unquote, normal, normal people are able to, if, if someone around them is, is feeling pain, we're able to have a, a degree of empathy of trying to understand what that person is going for. And psychopaths are, it's kind of an unlucky role of the of the genetic dice, they they lack that ability to empathize, and as a result, they can they can cause a lot of pain to people around them. So I would just say that you know if you're a person that has a real high IQ, or if you deal with people that are that have very high IQs in work situations or personal situations, just kind of be out, be on the lookout for for that kind of for that kind of behavior, and you know, be able to be able to identify it in in, in yourself um, and and in other people, so that so that there's not uh, there's not pain as a result. Well, I've got a couple of observations there, and again, it's not an area that I'm familiar with in terms of the research, but um, one is as you know we've discussed before. Uh, people who are smart or are measured to be smart generally have good goal focus, and goal focus um, clearly involves, you know, um, kind of it's the opposite of going with the flow. You've got clear objectives. You want to attain the objectives. You use your problem-solving skills and your IQ to attain your objectives. And psychopaths, it's not, as far as I know, simply that they, you know, lack the empathy and hurt people's feelings, but they're actually very goal-directed. And so they're, um, they're measured as being manipulative. And um, so that would fit, you know, the, the um, definition or the structure of intelligence uh, to the extent that it involves what are called executive processes. And part of the executive process is goal-directedness. So a psychopath is highly goal-directed, and will override um, usual social and emotional constraints to attain their goal. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing is, of course, if even if you have the empathy and you're not necessarily a sociopath in, to the extent that there's some abnormality in your ability to perceive emotions or perceive distress or fear or, or suffering in other people, um, even if you have a normal uh, emotional repertoire like that, um, of course, if you're super bright, a lot of the time you can you kind of you can anticipate and predict and understand reactions that people have, and then there must always be a temptation to kind of manipulate that a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's the other aspect of it, and. It might be difficult sometimes from a scientific point of view to kind of dis distinguish between the two of them, you know, because psychopathy or sociopathy is, you know, it's really um, a condition. You know, there are abnormalities in the amygdala and abnormalities in the ability to perceive emotions in others' expressions and things like that. Um, but that's a different kind of thing from someone who's super smart who can just read you like a book and has to be a bit contrived, maybe, in terms of socializing with someone, because they feel like 
it's not spontaneous. You know, it's just like they're predicting it all and, and so on. So that's a bit different. Well said, Mark. The the next notorious problem of smart people, and I, I, I imagine that you're probably real familiar with this, is being a night owl, being a person that, that stays up uh, really late. And so a 2009 University of London study found uh, a correlation between higher IQ and staying up really late, along with sleeping in early. And I think this kind of sucks for smart people because being a night owl or not getting quite enough sleep is really highly correlated to depression and a lot of other health risks. And so I've got a couple of, I've got a couple of biohacks for our listeners that, uh, that have this tendency to stay up really late. And uh, right. the, the first, which is completely free, and it's something that, that, that I really appreciate, is a little application called F.Lux. And this is a little application that runs in the background of your PC, your iPhone, or your iPad. And what it does is it actually detects when the sunset time is of wherever you are in the mm -hmm. world. And then it lowers the light automatically on your PC or on your iPhone at sunset so that that way your circadian rhythm is not is not clocking an extra day of aging because you're staring at this bright screen and it also removes some of the brighter colors like the blues and the and the and the bright reds from sure. your screen and it's pretty nice actually cuz a lot of times I'll be working and the sun will set, and then the and I'll, I'll you know I'm a motivated person like a lot of our listeners, so I'll continue working. But then I'll notice that as the light on my computer goes down, I start to get a little bit tired, and then I'm like, okay, now it's you know now it's time to do something other than stare at than stare at the glowing screen. So I'd really recommend that all of our listeners with uh, either a PC or an iPhone check out f.flux and that's a, a free download which we will which we will link up a few other biohacks for dealing with being a for being a night owl is to try to avoid drinking alcohol within an hour or two of bed there's a lot of people out there that kind of use alcohol use a have a nightcap of a of a drink or two to kind of chill them out a little bit and that a lot of times will actually wake you up later into the night and then as far as supplements well actually before I, i'd recommend any supplements i'd recommend drinking chamomile tea which is a uh, i believe that helps with the melatonin release or or you can just take melatonin tablets which are a as far as I understand, one of the most healthy ways to release that particular neurotransmitter that will put you to sleep. Mm. Well, thanks for the advice. I need it. <laughs> cool. Yeah, check out check out F. Lux. I know it's it's almost nighttime where you're at, so you could st you could start downloading it already. So the, for the next smart person problem, which I titled Cognitive Bias Blind Spots, I've actually got a little bit of a thought experiment question to ask you, Mark. And this is a thought experiment that was, uh, that's been used to demonstrate 
cognitive bias blind spots. So here's the question. A bat and a ball cost a dollar and ten cents. The bat mm -hmm. costs a dollar more than the ball. So how much does the ball cost? Uh, one cent. Very good, Mark. <laughs> That's, that's very good. Most people will jump to the conclusion. It, most people, if you ask them this, even, even people with higher IQs, and this was a study that they did at James Madison University, most people will answer back that the ball costs 10 cents. And that's because our, our minds are always kind of looking for, for cognitive shortcuts to figuring out problems. And it's for the vast majority of us, when I first heard this question, I said ten cent. I said ten cents also. Yeah, uh, it's automatic. Yeah. Because because our I, I think our mind's tendency is to try to solve problems with language as opposed to trying to solve problems with mathematics. And so, if you from a looking at just thinking about language, the automatic answer is, is 10 cents, but I think it does a good job of illustrating that our mind will, will, will jump to conclusions so that our, uh, how is it described that we are, uh, that the mind is a, a cognitive miser. It's always looking for yeah. the, the shortest distance between point A and point B. Um, and the, the study at James Madison University, this is a, this is a little bit, I, to be honest with you, I didn't completely understand this, so maybe you have some, some, some interesting insights. The study said that, that there was no real correlation between people with higher IQs being aware of their cognitive biases, that, that, we, were, that we were just as bad and in some cases worse at being aware of our cognitive biases as, you know, people with more, with more average IQs, which that was a little bit surprising to me. Well, I mean, the, study, the studies I've looked at are on cognitive biases. I mean, there are a whole host of different cognitive biases. Um, you know, for example, one's called the egocentric bias, uh, which is where you're, you have a pre-commitment to a particular position, I don't know, politically or scientifically or whatever it is. You have a certain attitude and you know, your bias, it's, it's using things like confirmation bias. I mean, bias to um, look, seek out information or evidence that supports your position while ignoring evidence that goes against it. Um, explaining away evidence that works against your position. Um, endorsing, you know, the evidence that supports it and so on. So this is um, what is sometimes called an egocentric bias. And um, there's no... People who are smarter have no less of this bias, and they're not aware of this bias. You know, it's not like being smarter helps you with this bias. There are other biases that being smarter helps you with, um, but this isn't one of them. And um, so, you know, if what they kind of the solution that they suggested in the article was that. We are good, what we are good at is uh, being, is noticing the biases that other people have. So I guess kind of the common sense solution would be to kind of just have, have a network of people or a mastermind of people that are kind of, that are helping, that are auditing your, 
your mission critical decisions and that are that are that, that you get advice from, which I guess is is kind of is kind of common sense anyways. But um, that well, was kind yeah. of the, the takeaway from the article. I mean, one one thing that strikes me, I mean, it seems fairly important is it, it's fairly important, let's say, from a political point of view or an educational point of view. Um, you know, you get a lot of very very smart politicians, for example, or members of think tanks and uh, who are advising politicians and doing analysis and so on. Um, so, as I say, I mean, the evidence, is lots of it, shows that smart people have no less egocentric bias. They're no less biased in their attitudes or no less, you know, subject to confirmation bias than people who aren't smart. And so what happens when you get super smart politicians or super smart lawyers is that uh, you've got people who can very effectively, you know, argue for a certain position and uh, rationalize or try and discount evidence, evidence or arguments against their position. Um, but we should all remember that this particular bias, smart people are as susceptible to as anyone else is. So, you know, when, when people talk about critical thinking, and the whole kind of discipline of critical thinking. The idea is to try and overcome some of these uh, biases and try and be more objective in how you're weighing up evidence. Um, but super smart people are no better at that than anyone else is when it comes to being, you know, objective. And that's worth, you know, <laughs> taking note of uh, when you're listening to some very, very uh, smart politicians or lawyers. Well, uh, to move on, Eleanor Roosevelt said that great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. And that's, this is one of my favorite quotes, and I think it kind of highlights another problem, which is that smart people, unless we take a real, a real purposeful approach to our, to our social lives, sometimes there can be a little bit of, of, of intellectual loneliness. And I think this is solved by connecting purposefully with uh, groups and with individuals that have a stated interest in, in subjects that you really enjoy. And so two social networks that I really like for, kind, for finding these kinds of people are meetup.com and couchsurfing.org, which is the site that you're probably familiar with, Mark. It's for, it's for uh, world travelers. And I found that the, the world travelers that I've connected with off couchsurfing.org have the vast majority of them have been, have been people that, that wanted to go, that wanted to go deep, that they, they didn't, they weren't uh, interested in discussing, you know, events or discussing people. They were interested in discussing big ideas. And so, uh, so I'd recommend that any of our listeners that ever, you know, deal with a little bit of, of intellectual loneliness to check out those two sites. Right. Uh, another problem of smart people is that smart people lie more. And I thought this I thought this one was kind of funny. What they found when they put people with high IQs in MRI machines was that there was a strong correlation in the areas of the mind that were lighting up in between executive function and in between lying. And so I think this is because people that are a little bit higher IQ, they have a better job of, of managing the, the myriad of, of false details that are 
that are required if you're gonna if you're gonna tell a good lie. So I, I thought this I thought this one is not necessarily. I, I thought it was a little bit funny to be to be honest with you. Um, was the study showing that they were lying more, or that they were using executive function more when they were lying? It was showing. Uh, no, it was showing that they were using executive function when they were lying. Uh, yeah, that, so that's yeah, that may be different, you know, from them lying more. I mean, it may be that they lie less, but they use executive function more. I don't know. Yeah, I guess that would just come down to the the moral standards. They're more skilled at lying. More, <laughs> they they may be more skilled and more uh, um, you know self-regulating when they're lying. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so if you, dear listener, are not a skilled liar, and let's face it, you know, we, we all lie a little bit here and there. It happens inevitably. It's a kind of an inevitable part of, of human interaction. But if you're not a skilled liar, you can check out dual NBAC training, which is uh, scientifically <laughs> proven, which is scientifically proven to increase executive functioning. So, so you're, only, you're only three weeks away from, from, being, a better, from being a better liar. If you're if you're not so good now, uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I think it's a general. You could put it another way, which is, you know, anything you do, um, if it involves self-monitoring and executive control, uh, people who are smarter who have more executive control will be better at if it benefits from that kind of self-regulation. So lying is one thing, but it could be learning a language, or it could be um, you know, any number of different things. Um, so I don't know if it's, it, that particular study is showing that there's something specific about lying. Yeah, it was showing more so the correlation between executive function and being deceptive. Yeah, I mean, but on the other hand, it could have been, for example, a teamwork study, which, like lying, requires monitoring you know, fairly complex flow of information and also monitoring your own interaction with the situation. Um, and it could have also shown that smarter people had more executive activation, you know, in their brain. Um, you see what I'm saying? So it could be more, more insightful about um, any kind of task that's complex requiring an interaction with your environment. Um, and and the need for executive control or the application of executive control rather than specifically related to, to lying. You see what I'm saying? So speaking of lying, the next problem that three different studies have demonstrated is that more educated people are more likely to fall for investment scams. And hmm. This one I kind of laughed at when I when I heard it because I was actually once upon a time a victim of a investment scam. And so my personal experience lines up completely with what these studies said about more educated people or people with higher IQs being being easier victims of investment scams is when I, I made an investment of, a, of around four figures a couple of years ago into something that that turned out to be uh, to be just completely illegitimate and my yeah. thought at the time was that my my thought at the time was that my my personal radar for business opportunities was was really finely tuned 
and that I would, and that just following my best instincts, I would not be taken advantage of. And that particular confidence or ego or whatever you want to call it, in combination with some some greed on my behalf, looking for looking for a way to make some easy money, uh, resulted in me losing around four figures on on what turned out to be a uh, a fairly standard investment scam. So I'd I'd encourage our listeners to you know be 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 extra wary of uh, of of business or investment opportunities that that seem like they're too too good to be true because a lot of times they are well i've got some experience with this um while i was a lecturer at cambridge university um i set up a sort of like a discussion group um and one of the participants in that group um was from the computer science uh, or computer engineering department, and we started up a business together to try to predict um, futures markets. Um, and the idea was that we would use time zones to help us. So the idea was when markets are... Yeah, so as I was saying, yeah, we, we went into a partnership and set up a kind of uh, futures trading um, uh, company. It was an algorithm we developed to predict uh, futures markets in the states from futures markets in Asia. That was the basic idea because of the uh, the time zone. And um, you know, the Asian markets have already sort of traded for the day before the American markets opened. And there may have been, we thought, some useful information that we could use to predict the one from the other. So. Um, you know, we worked on that for about six months and traded for, you know, several months and ended up losing our money. And um, it was a very sophisticated algorithm that we developed, um, but, you know, it ended up failing. Now, in retrospect, we should have listened to everyone who said, imagine how many tens of thousands of super bright people are all trying to make money out of these markets. And imagine what the competition is here. Um, imagine how many algorithms are already out there trying to extract this kind of information. Imagine, you know, what advantage sort of insider, you know, trading information is going to give traders in banks compared to day traders at home. And there are all these various things, they're all just common sense uh, that were telling us at the time, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea. But we were really convinced because we had this good idea and because we had a lot of, um, you know, technical and mathematical know-how at our fingertips that we could somehow out... Oh, yeah, yeah, that we could somehow outsmart the system. Um, but, but it, you know, it failed. We didn't. And... Um, and so that might be, you know, that it might relate to what you're saying. Um, because you kind of have an overconfidence in your own ability and your own technical ability sometimes, um, you can end up making, uh, you know, pursuing goals that really, uh, I don't know, go against common sense. 
So the next problem, the next notorious problem of smart people or, or smart-seeming people like myself is that sometimes we tend to dominate conversations talking about ourselves, talking about our things or our experiences. And this can be a really serious turn off to others and it reveals a, a, a real lack of emotional intelligence when 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 you talk about yourself too much, which is certainly something that I've been I've been guilty of. I've got a couple of uh, I've, got, I've got a couple of lines actually that you can use that our listeners can use to to keep the conversation more more balanced. My my favorite one is if I'm talking with someone, I'll just ask them, tell me something interesting about yourself, and that will give them the opportunity to talk about something that they're really passionate about. And and that's unique to them and, and counterbalance the conversation. Uh, another line I like to use is I'll ask them, what, are, what do you do when you aren't blank? And the blank is anything contextually relevant. So if, let's say I meet someone surfing. I'll ask them, what do you do when you aren't surfing? Let's say I meet someone at the gym. I'll say, what do you do when you're not at the gym? And that allows them to, it's not necessarily going into that boring conversation of, oh, what do you do for work? Where are you from? That, that very scripted conversation, but it's kind of leaving it open-ended for them to reveal some, some fascinating detail about themselves. Mm -hmm. I also like to use what I like to call micro-assumptions in conversation to get people to talk about themselves. So as opposed to asking people yes or no questions, when they say something about themselves, I like to state a small, sometimes kind of cheeky assumption about them based upon what they've said. So, for example, as I travel, I meet a lot of people from London and New York. And whenever I meet someone from London or New York, I'll say, oh, you're from London or New York. Do you work in fashion or finance? And for some reason, a lot of people that travel that are from London or New York tend to work in fashion or finance. And it's always kind of a a, a cheeky a cheeky moment and so it drives the conversation on with them talking about themselves and talking about what they do so i just got a quick question to interject here i mean like i know people who are working a lot of the time in labs or in you know university environments and they have a very circumscribed very limited social life and a lot of these issues about what to say to people in casual conversation actually very rarely comes up because they meet the same people every day. They have a, you know, a set of friends they, they stick with, and it's almost like done, you know, social life problem solved. <laughs> um, so uh, a lot of the smart people I know, I mean, you know, don't quite fit this, um, this picture you're, you're painting here where these kinds of skills are relevant, you know. But I'm just interested in, you know, your case, my case. We're obviously traveling around, we're meeting people. And so the whole thing of social skills and conversational skills becomes a very big issue, doesn't it? I mean, have you, have you thought about, you know, just stepping back and talking about ideas like you were talking about before? Because um, it seems like a lot of what you're suggesting are kind of like either biohacks or cognitive hacks like this. Okay, as far as biohacks for making yourself more social? 
Yeah, in a way. I mean, that's kind of the concept, isn't it? You know, you're, you're recording something, you're going back, and you're using that recording to improve your, your conversational skills and engagement. You know, that's kind of like a biohack. So, um, but what I find interesting is, and I'd agree with you, you know, this kind of approach to life is getting more and more significant, isn't it? I mean, we talked about Tim Ferriss. Um, have you heard of Dave Asprey? Dave Asprey, yes. I try to follow everything he puts out. Yeah. So, you know, you've got people like Dave Asprey, <laughs> Tim Ferriss, um, and, you know, numerous other people. But it's it's a very similar approach. And what's interesting about it is you could say it's like a a cognitive approach um, to the extent, or a cognitive intervention approach, I should say. Um, you know, you've got, you want to improve your kind of performance or you want to improve your skills and you're using technology and the scientific method and a lot of self-monitoring and self-awareness and executive functioning cognitively to, um, you know, develop these skill sets in pretty much every single area of life, you know, whether it's relationships or whether it's conversations or whether it's, you know, uh, getting laid, like you were saying, or um, or obviously learning a language or something more academic. Um, so, you know, it's pretty fascinating, isn't it, where it becomes a kind of a whole, um, you know, way of life almost. Yeah, and it's, I think, a way of life. I think it's going to be the way of life that allows more people to be more happy and, and more healthy going into the future. Yeah. So, That's right, because health, health is a big major aspect of it too, yeah. So the next problem of uh, the next problem of smart people is that our evolutionary psychology actually encourage us, encourages us to believe in to believe in God, and so evolutionarily novel smart people are a whole lot more likely to be atheists or at least not religious and. Not many smart people would admit that this is a problem, but uh, studies have shown that religious people usually live longer and are generally happier. So there's not, I mean, if you're, if, if, I would never encourage anyone either way in their religion or their faith, but I just thought this was kind of a, an, interesting, an interesting problem. So the next problem of smart people, and this is actually a problem that I think smart people worry about way more than it happens, is people stealing your ideas. And this is something that this is something that you hear a lot in the business world, is you hear of people being maybe afraid to share ideas because they don't want people to steal their ideas. And I don't know about you, Mark, but the more that I've grown as a business person, the more over the years, the more I've realized that ideas, even even radically profitable ideas, are really worthless without execution. And so I think that the very best defense against people stealing your ideas is to execute on your ideas to the extent that people don't want to compete with you. Mm, that's a good idea. Yeah. As as a couple of as a couple of practical solutions to people not stealing your ideas, I'm going to link my NDA template on the show notes for this website. Our listeners are probably familiar with an NDA. It's a it's a basic document that just states that hey, 
if you're going to share an idea with an investor or whatnot, they're not going to steal your idea. And to be honest with you, most good investors or good business people don't sign NDAs, and they really don't hold up in court anymore, but it kind of, an NDA can set kind of an, an emotional expectation that someone isn't going to steal your idea, which can be quite a bit more powerful than I think actually than the actual NDA itself. But again, I think the best defense is just to execute on them really aggressively. I'm going to jump to the final two problems, the final two most notorious problems of, of smart people, which I because I think we've covered the rest of them pretty thoroughly. The one that I think we have to be the most aware of is analysis paralysis. So as far back as like Aesop's fables and Shakespeare's plays, they, they describe analysis paralysis as a problem of smart people. And I think that analysis paralysis is quite possibly the most, the most insidious problem smart people have because it cloaks itself in the essential processes employed in any successful endeavor, which are, you know, logic, cost-benefit decision-making, and, and planning. But the problem with analysis paralysis is when the opportunity cost of decision analysis becomes greater than the benefits that could be gained from a positive outcome of that particular of that particular decision. And so I think analysis paralysis. Okay, what are your thoughts on analysis paralysis, Mark? Um, well, I mean, the really smart people I know haven't really been subject to that problem, um, you know, because they've been very goal-focused and, um, um, you know, been much more results-oriented. Paralysis of analysis. Um, I I've got a couple solutions to run past our listeners. And so time boxing is just setting really specific time frames for when certain goals are going to be accomplished. And setting, you know, saying, okay, we have 10 days to plan out what our action strategy is going to be for the next 12 months. And after those 10 days, even if we're not completely planned out as much as we'd like to be, even if we haven't analyzed the data as much as we would like to. I mean, another, yeah, I mean, uh, maybe a simple sort of uh, strategy for that would be, you know, you can either focus on the process of what you're doing, how you're analyzing something, you know, what kind of strategy you're, you're um, applying, whatever it is, or you can focus on the results. And, you know, if you've got deadlines and you've got results to come out with, then that can help, you know. So um, with the paralysis of analysis, I mean, the more you're focused on the goal and the more motivated you are to achieve or attain the goal, uh, maybe in an addictive way, like you were saying before, um, the more you kind of get disciplined with the amount of analysis that you allow yourself to do. I mean, it's it's like a limited resource analysis. And as a limited resource, you need intelligently to know how much of it to use up before you actually commit to something. And it's like when you make a decision, you know, if you, you, you might benefit from another two or three days of analysis or three, two or three days of research 
to get more information to help your decision, but you might not have that time. So it's a kind of a cost-benefit type of thing. And if you're goal-focused and you're working in a schedule, um, I think you can get much better at um, treating analysis as a kind of a limited resource. I feel like uh, another solution to analysis paralysis is to try to err on the audacious, try to err on the side of audacious action. So we've seen like great thinkers throughout the ages have articulated that making decisions in a bold manner gets really big results. I think it was Virgil that said, audacious fortuna huvat, fortune favors the bold. And I also like what uh, Robert Greene said in the 48 Laws of Power when he said that mistakes that you commit through audacity, you can usually also correct them by using audacity. So I would encourage people to, to err on the side of audacious action as opposed to erring on the side of analysis paralysis. Great. So let's talk about high IQ Pro now. I've been I've been experimenting for about the past week with the Android version of it. And I gotta say, Mark, I really enjoy the Android version of High IQ Pro a whole lot more than the PC version. And there's a couple of reasons behind that. First of all, as we've talked about a lot in this episode, it's really important that we kind of compartmentalize our day into different chunks of time, that we compartmentalize time, that we're working, that we're in front of the in front of our computer screens, that we compartmentalize time for exercise, that we compartmentalize time for socializing. And one thing that I really like to compartmentalize time for is kind of a, a buffer in between work and either social life or exercise life or whatever. And that's kind of time that I spend relaxing um, with with my smartphone. And uh, what I've been doing for the past week is that relaxing time. I'll go and hang out in a hammock or I'll find a cafe somewhere and I'll do the high IQ pro training on my phone. And I find that it, it brings my day through kind of a nice smooth pattern where I have a time during the day that I'm working very focused on my computer and then I close my computer, I physically get away from the computer and I go and get on my smartphone and do my high IQ pro. A lot of times I'll do my vocabulary training for my Spanish vocabulary that I'm trying to pick up and I find that that is a much nicer way to practice with High IQ Pro than having High IQ Pro as another window that's open on, uh, that's open mm -hmm. on my computer. Yeah, that makes sense. What I, what I also really appreciate about High IQ Pro is I appreciate that it has a black background to it. Mm -hmm. And like, uh, you know, we, we were talking earlier about our circadian rhythms and how staring at these glowing screens all day and part of the night is, is so, is, it's not good for our biology at all. And I really appreciate that the high IQ Pro application has a black background. So when I'm looking at it in the early evening, and here in Colombia, the sun sets at about 6.30, so it becomes very 
fairly dark here, fairly early in the in the evening, and I find that when I'm looking at that screen, it's not a blinding screen that I can tell is turning my circadian rhythm back on. It's a little bit more of a it's a little bit more of a of a soothing experience. Something that I also like, uh, as we were talking about earlier about how important you know social life is, is I find that uh, I find that. I actually get the opportunity to chit-chat with a lot of people. I get the opportunity to chat with more people about high IQ and about dual end back training and about this, this quantifiable journey that, that we're on to become better versions of ourselves using technology when I have this application because I'll be, I'll be hanging out in a hammock or at a cafe or something like that doing my dual end back training and then I'll, I'll say hi to someone or someone will someone will say what's up to me and I'll be like oh I'm doing my my dual end back training and they'll be like oh mm -hmm. what's that and so that I find that I find that it actually doing dual end back training on an application on a smartphone makes it makes it more social and not not social in a sense of, of social networks and more technology, but actual actually makes me more social with the people that are physically around me. What's the time frame for having it in the Android marketplace? Well, the way it's it's, it's not actually being uh, sold in the Android marketplace initially. Um, it's being sold, you know, through my website. Okay, excellent. So it's going to be so when people purchase it, they uh, the IQ Mindware site. That's going to be a download that's included. Yeah, actually, it's the highiqpro.com site. I just sent you an infographic, Jonathan, um, which kind of explains the concept for this High IQ Pro training, um, which you might want to have a look at and um, maybe give some information about, if, uh, you know, on your own site if you're discussing it. Um, but what's, what's useful about working memory is it enables you to internalize kind of strategies and rules of thumb and techniques more efficiently, you know, and deploy them more efficiently. And so what we're doing with this is giving, you know, problems kind of well-designed in cognitive science uh, to be sort of foundational type problems. And and then through sort of little mini tutorials, giving tips about how to solve those problems. And in combination with the working memory training, the idea is that, you know, we're, we're better able to incorporate and simulate these kind of little hacks. Um, it's like all these biohacks you're talking about. I mean, for them to work, you need to be able to, to actually use your executive functioning and to, to use them and to know when to use them. And, uh, you know, that in itself is trivial. So we're kind of thinking that combining working memory training with with learning useful strategies for problem solving is, uh, is a really good way to go to improve intelligence. So it's not just the working memory training, but it's working memory training combined with, you know, what you could call these hacks. You know, Mark, an article that I read recently on your site that I really liked was on the on the the most 
efficient way to use the dual NBAC task to improve your memory. Because my experience, similar similar to probably everybody else that's that's trained with dual NBAC, is the you know the first couple sessions you do it, you're really kind of just cognitively overwhelmed by it. There's there's a lot going on, and you probably don't score real high in it. But then as time goes on, as you continue practicing, you find that you kind of get yourself into into patterns of ways that you ways that you're you're training yourself to do the dual and back task and so there was the okay so there was the if i recall the article correctly there's the method where you're essentially kind of rehearsing mentally in your mind what the block position was end positions back or you're saying to yourself in your mind you're repeating what the letters repeated end positions back were and that that was the most effective way to build the working memory and to build fluid intelligence with it and that there is a little bit of a of a temptation to to do this chunking which is where you're kind of making what I found was that there was a temptation to kind of make generalizations of being like okay three positions back or four positions back I remember that it was on the right hand side of the screen so if it goes on the right hand side of the screen again then it's likely that it's a correct it's likely that that it's that it's a correct match and positions ah, back that's actually another uh, strategy yeah it's not one that I specifically discussed but that's interesting um, that's another strategy and and, uh, and all of these strategies aren't actually training your working memory capacity. Um, they're kind of little hacks that you use to make the job easier. It's like the cognitive miser kind of idea. Um, so um, it's, it's, yeah, it's great that you've identified that one as well. That's almost like a statistical hack. You know, when you say generalization, it's like it was on the right. So in other words, it, it increases the odds. It increases the chances of you getting it right. Yeah, I'm making a small bet. Yeah, yeah, it's making it's like making a small bet, which is another strategy. But the trouble with all these strategies is that you can kind of deploy them more and more effectively. Like you could have a whole cluster of strategies like that. That might be one of them. Another one might be that you you kind of string certain meaningful. Um, uh, um, a combination of letters or a shape together. So let, let's say it's a visual one. It might be uh, that you remember it was a square shape or a triangle shape. You know, that's a chunking effect. Um, or it could be that you decide strategically to let go of the information. Don't try and update it in your mind. And because you know that you've only got a bit to go and all you need to do is get like one more correct or you've got enough correct to go up a level or to stay on the same level. You know what I mean? So you're strategically kind of blanking out bits uh, and, and trying to kind of focus only on the information that will help you go up a level or stay on the same level. Um, so all of these kind of things are strategies that are, that are used that actually work again, expanding working memory. And, and you, you really want a program designed that tries to offset your ability to use all of these strategies. And that's what High IQ Pro is programmed really specifically for, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we're offsetting quite a few of those strategies, and we're uh, continually, you know, trying to come out with upgrades to do a better job with that. But yeah, that's 
that's what we're aiming at. Here's a here's a potential strategy. What about if I if I gave each position a name? Like for example, uh, so the the phonetic alf the phonetic alphabet has ten. The phonetic alphabet has has approximately ten sounds in it. So if I named each position, each uh, sequential, each position of the dual n back square one of those pieces in the phonetic alphabet, and then I repeated the phonetic alphabet sequence that it's been going in. Would that, would you think, would that be a strategy that's working exactly, towards building, yeah. or would yeah, that yeah, be? That's, that's another strategy, yeah. Would that we be need one to compile, a... We need to compile a database of strategies. <laughs> <laughs> Tackle each one, one by one. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, look, it, what, what you're, what you're doing here is you're actually obviously employing your intelligence to come up with strategies to make the job easier. But what what the MBAC uh, training is trying to do is is not do that, not deploy these strategies to make the job easier. The idea is to deliberately keep it hard um, to try and you know expand the uh, the the real deal of your working memory capacity. You know your ability to kind of count through the sequence and update that sequence so all that information is there at all points. You know what I mean? That's working memory capacity. So the very best thing, what we want to focus on is that mental, mentally rehearsing the positions where they were, end positions, end positions ago, and we want to try to avoid, we want to try to avoid being, being too clever, but we want to try to avoid outsmarting exactly. the game. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Okay, I've I got I'm looking at this infographic. This is really cool. I'm gonna make sure that this infographic is linked on the show notes for this particular episode. And then, of course, we also have High IQ Pro, which is for sale with the Android app. It is uh, forty nine ninety nine. Okay, excellent. I'll make so sure it's, that it's I have the desktop and uh, desktop and the Android uh, app. So, Mark. Thanks again for spending the uh, the time to chat with me today about about these notorious smart people's problems, and hopefully we can hopefully those these won't be problems for any of our listeners anymore because I think we identified some pretty some pretty actionable solutions to most of them. Here's a cool life hack for reading more and procrastinating less. So there's a couple of serious information consumption problems with reading blogs and online articles. No matter how informative, engaging, or actionable the content is, you'll be working online and stumble upon an article that you know is going to be worth reading, but you don't want to stop with your current task. The distraction factors of reading online articles are huge. The temptation to check email or social media contacts. A lot of times you'll read half an article, get distracted by something, and then never return to finish that article. If you're like me, you have a million bookmarks in your web browser. So if you bookmark yet another blog or article to read, all that does is ensure it's going to be lost in the avalanche of bookmarks. If you're a hustler slash geek like me, a lot of times you like to 
read work or business-related articles at the end of the day to kind of let the knowledge marinate into your mind as you relax. And the problem with this is that reading on your computer screen is really bad for your eyes, especially at night, which is probably when you're going to be doing most of your reading if you follow proper information consumption practices. So the solution is an Evernote stuff to read notebook. So Evernote, which is one of our top, debatably the top life hacking tool, is free and awesome. And it will synchronize notes between your web browser devices and smartphones beautifully. This makes saving articles for future information consumption really easy. Here's how you do it. Step one is that you create a folder in Evernote called Stuff to Read. And if you don't have Evernote yet, come on, it's 2013, and it's seriously time that you got with the program. Did we mention that Evernote's free? Go download it now if you haven't gotten it already. Step number two is to install the Evernote web browser plugin for Google Chrome. I believe the other leading web browsers have Evernote plugins as well, but if you're serious about your life hacking, Google Chrome is the best. You will now see a little Evernote icon in the upper right corner of your web browser. When you stumble upon an article that, look like, that looks like it's going to be worth reading, click the little Evernote icon and select Save Article in the Stuff to Read folder. It takes about two clicks and three seconds to save the article for later consumption. What's especially awesome is that Evernote usually, in a very intuitive way, selects just the text of the article to save, not the distracting side banners or menus of the web page. Later on, when you've got some time to relax and enjoy some reading, pull up Evernote on your smartphone or tablet and you'll have the article already downloaded to your device. If not, just click the sync button in the Evernote app and you should have the article in moments. I prefer to turn off the other apps on the device so I'm not distracted by social media or email notifications while reading. If you are reading at night, save your eyes and circadian rhythm by taking a minute to turn down the brightness on the screen of your device. So what about blog commenting? Let's say you have some ingenious comment to leave on an article that you saved to Evernote. Just click the edit button in Evernote to write in the note and leave your comment at the top of the article. Now click the sync button to save your comment and Evernote conveniently saves the URLs of all articles you clip so later on when you're in front of your computer you can can quickly copy and paste your comments into the comment sections of the blogs that you read. Talk about task batching your blog commenting. Optional is that you could create another folder in Evernote called Red Stuff or whatever. Remember, the first folder is Stuff to Read. The second folder is Red Stuff. 
when you've finished a seriously useful article that you want to save for a future reference, just move it into this folder so that your stuff to read folder doesn't get overwhelmingly crowded with outrageously interesting articles to read. And if you really want to take this to the next level, you might want to look into the paid version of Evernote, which enables you to create offline downloaded folders. That way, if like myself, you're traveling to some exotic corner of the globe without Wi-Fi, you can get your read on. Here's a technology life hack for improving your conversational skills quickly. Have you ever had the experience of being unknowingly recorded? Many people find it downright horrifying the first time they watch or hear a recording of themselves. And here's the problem. A lot of us have unattractive or just plain sloppy body language or auditory communication habits that we aren't aware of. These habits really hold us back from becoming the best versions of ourselves. Unless you have the time, money, or inclination to take acting classes or go to a social dynamics boot camp, it's pretty difficult to identify weaknesses that could be doing damage to your communication game, be it in personal or business situations. So the solution, and hint, it's probably in your pocket right now. There's several very good and very free apps you can download on your iPhone or Android for recording and replaying your in-person conversations. We'll link these in the show notes. I like Medio Recorder for Android and there's Evernote for iPhone or you could also use your Evernote for this. Evernote will do audio notes as well. Here's the how-to of this. Next time you're having a not boring conversation in person with someone, nonchalantly pull out your smartphone as people do frequently in conversations nowadays. Launch the app and begin recording the conversation. If you have the Evernote widget installed on the home screen of your phone, it literally takes about three seconds to open a voice note and begin recording the conversation. Now, place your phone on the table in between you and your friend. At first, you might feel a little weird since the other person won't know the conversation is being recorded. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm pretty sure that provided you aren't using a live recording for commercial purposes, this is completely legal. And it's almost impossible that the other person would, would know that you're recording it because these apps run in the background of your phone. So the purpose is just to find out how you sound to other people in conversations. At the end of the day, go back and listen to the recordings. You may be a little shocked at what you hear. Here's a few tweaks I identified in my own conversational skills. I say, so, way too much. And sometimes my voice goes up at the end of the statement as opposed to going down at the end of the statement. This makes me sound a little bit uncertain of what I'm saying occasionally. 
I also found that a lot of times I use creative expressions to introduce things I'm going to talk about, but frequently I will mumble or not say the expression completely before jumping into the explanation or the, the main topic. And I think people will probably appreciate my creative expressions more if I'm not rushing them. In professional and personal situations, life hackers can seriously benefit from recording and auditing our conversations. So try it today. It's free and super easy to do. Here's a few of my own conversations to close out this episode. Every time I meet an attractive foreign woman, I try to convince them to do this because it'd be the easiest way to make money. Is what you have to do is... Uh, you wouldn't need a camera. A cell phone would work. Um, but you'd need, like, you'd need, like, jokes. You, you'd need to have, like, jokes and, like, clever things to say. And then just make videos of yourself, like, looking cute with, like, nice outfit on. Like, you know, hair done and everything. And, like, just make jokes while looking cute. And I swear, you'll make, you'll make, like, as much, if not more money than, like, than, than like some little BS little job, and you'll have complete freedom over your time. You can well, keep I traveling. Like yeah, it's kind of objectifying. I wish I, wish I could objectify myself. <laughs> yeah, I would totally objectify myself like, if it could be done. Uh, I object to myself, objectify myself for free. <laughs> I'm going to do it for free. It's better than it. Thanks for that. I reckon you should turn this into your new um, website. Yeah, it's a million. It's, it's not a million dollars. It's probably like, probably like an $80,000. I loved it. Loved you it. You still are? In Honduras? Uh, yeah, I haven't been there yet, so but apparently there's this bartender like that has a gun, and if you don't pay your bill, he'll like put his gun at you. He's friends with my friend Justin. So no, if you don't pay your bill, he'll like point his gun at you and be like, pay your bill. Yeah. Where? At, at this bar in Utila. It's not that many. It's not that many bars. Yeah. Like, three or five. Yeah. Well, for tourists, yeah. Better pay your bill. The tree bar thing? Oh, is this where it is? Yeah. It's amazing. It's actually like, even the bathroom is like, this is like a. Are you going up or down? Up this? this is like a, a we think. tree uh, that's a bar. Wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Really? It's a bar in a tree. What takes it's us, really cool. And there's like a bar. Like yeah. yeah. It's made of shells. And the bathroom is in the tree also? No. It's downstairs. That's good. I imagine that a bathroom inside of a tree would be kind of like that scene uh, from Return of the Jedi. I know. What was the second Star Wars movie? Where remember where Luke Skywalker goes inside the tree and then he has to fight Darth Vader and it's like really moist inside of there. What was the phrase you guys taught me? It was my name is Jonathan. My name is Jonathan. Each bin. Each bin. 
Ich bin aus Denver. Ich bin aus Denver. What if I just say ich bin Denver? Does it still make sense? Or no? I am Denver. I am Denver. Ich bin aus Denver. And you said, if I have something, then it be, then I say, each each other, each each other, each other. Okay, so each other, Katzen. Yeah, so the Albrook Mall has a bunch of pretty good stores. I think they have a pretty wide variety, actually. Is it here or in the city? In the city. I was thinking about what going there. The Allbrook Mall. That's like the, it's, it's like a super mall. Trust me, it's it's where you want to go. Allbrook Mall, the best mall for the backpackers, the best prices and the best variety. Yeah, see, I'm a source of credible information. Yeah, there you most go. of the time. Sweet. <clears throat> Albrook Mall. I need to go there to buy a belt buckle. You need to buy a belt buckle? Yeah. I had this, like, really fashionable, like, P. Diddy belt buckle that I had yeah. on this, this white Armani, uh, Armani Exchange belt and I was partying one night and it broke. And Terrible. Yeah, so partying too hard, your belt buckle broke. It was it was it was it was uh, it was a scuba gear night. Was a what? A scuba gear night. A scuba goo? What does that mean? No a scuba gear. Scuba gear. Scuba goo. That's a scuba gear night. What does that mean? So, uh, you've been to Bocos, right? Yeah. Did you go to Aqua Lounge very often? Uh-huh. So, at Aqua Lounge, uh, I had, like, snorkeling gear. Okay. And when there was, like, a big party going on, uh-huh. I would go, like, you know, everyone was on the, the dance floor getting crazy. Yeah. You've been at Aqua Lounge for those nights, right? I've been, I've, I mean, I was only there one night. It was decently crazy. Yeah, so I was, uh, so I would, like, put on my snorkeling gear, and then I'd, like, go out and dance uh-huh. <laughs> with my flippers on, which was... With your Armani belt? Uh, no, I had to, like, take my Armani belt off really fast and, like, go and, like, throw it on the bed, and then go and pull on my... You stayed back around? Yeah, I stayed there for, like, eight days. Legal notices. If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink. We want to give credit where credit is due. As a listener to the Limitless Mindset Podcast, we hope you have and practice common sense. However, since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health, legal, or business nature, this show is for entertainment 
purposes. If you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com mindset.com 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 mindset.com